0: Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be taking a break starting August 5th through Friday, August 26th, when I will return with an interview with Chris Kander, author of A Gracious Neighbor. This is a great time to get caught up on any past episodes that you haven't had time to listen to yet. And if there's one that you particularly enjoy, please share it on social media. It really helps me find new listeners when that happens. So thank you in advance. In addition, if you're caught up on all of my episodes, I would love for you to join my Patreon group if you're looking for more fun book conversations. I have all sorts of bonus episodes there, plus a newsletter and a Facebook group. I'd love to have you. Today, Lee Newman joins me to chat about Nobody Gets Out Alive. Lee is also the author of Still Points North, a memoir about growing up in Alaska. Her memoir was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize. Her stories have appeared in Harper's, The Paris Review, Tin House, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, One Story, and Electric Literature. In 2020, she was awarded the Paris Review's Terry Southern Prize, a Best American Short Story, a Pushcart Prize, and an American Society of Magazine Editors Fiction Prize for her work in the Paris Review. Previously, she co-founded the indie press Black Balloon, Catapult, where she still works as editor-at-large. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Lee. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so glad you're here, and I really, really enjoyed your collection of short stories called Nobody Gets Out Alive, and all of the wonderful press you've had, star reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, and Booklist, and this wonderful New York Times review. Are you just thrilled to pieces?
1: Yes, honestly. I'm kind of stunned. You know, you want these things, and you're like in the dark of night, you'll say, oh my God, wouldn't that be great? not even just a starred Kirkus Review, like just to get a Kirkus Review that was good because they can be so tricky. Exactly. Like I don't so. even think I ha- would have had the temerity to put a star on that. I probably was like, dear God, please let it be like not bad. That's probably how I would have phrased it in my mind. And same thing, you know, just, just to get into the New York Times to me on the level that I'm on, you know, like makes you feel so, I mean, it just turns your day to champagne because all those years of work, right? And so many little wrong turns could happen. And so when they somehow all turn right, you you feel so, so I just feel really lucky, honestly. I just feel super, super lucky.
0: Well, it's all very exciting and very well-deserved. Thank you. Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about Nobody Gets Out Alive. Give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet.
1: Okay, so Nobody Gets Out Alive is a collection of stories, short stories about Alaska where I grew up and they are linked. What I did was invent a lake called Diamond Lake, which is very similar to lots of lakes that are in Anchorage, Alaska, where people kind of live in a a normal suburban environment, but in their backyard, they have an airplane or maybe two, or they have a helicopter, maybe some snow machines, and um, they kind of go in and out of the wilderness with these vehicles. And why I wanted to create the lake was to have different families interacting. So you would see a little girl's story. And then maybe you would see her later when she was 50 and a neighbor of someone. One of the stories is the origin story of the lake and, and of the formation of Anchorage, Alaska. But it would add kind of these contexts because people are sleeping together or they're having affairs or they're getting married or they're or they're best friends over time or they go to each other's parties and are mentioning it in passing. And it, I wanted it to like give the feeling of a small town, which very much even Anchorage, Alaska, which is the biggest city in Alaska, is Hardly even really a city, you know. I think it's it's a small it's a town still. Or it, it, it it's hard it is. On the other hand, I also wanted to show what real Alaskans live like because I've seen so many reality shows that have almost no bearing on the diversity of Alaska, the culture of Alaskans. You know, they live in town, they they go to Costco and they have a strip mall and they go bowling, right? But then they like go on their summers or on their weekends and they're regularly going out to the wilderness to like hunt caribou for food, or fish for salmon, or climb mountains, or build a remote cabin. Like those two sides are definitely, you know, part and parcel of what it's like to be an Alaskan. And I really wasn't seeing that sort of portrayed when I would see television shows where they had sort of people living under a tarp, or like a lot of people (laughs) would ask me if I'd seen the show called Alone, which I guess is like people going into the wilderness alone naked. And um, I was like, no Alaskan would ever do that. (laughs)
0: Like, <laughs> it's way too cold
1: <laughs> yeah we're in it to survive we're not in you know, like our idea would be going with really good gear you know what i mean and be protected from the elements
0: well we talked about this a little bit before we started recording but one of my favorite vacations my family has taken is a cruise to alaska and then we took the train on up to denali and a bus back and i just loved it it was absolutely beautiful but I know my perspective as a guest and as a vacationer is vastly different than the experience of living in Alaska. So I really enjoyed your book to kind of fill in some of the pieces for me.
1: Can I ask a question? Did you guys stop in Skagway?
0: I think so. We did. We we stopped four places, and I'm trying to think. Obviously, we started right out of Anchorage, and then we headed down to Vancouver, and we yeah. stopped three or four ports. I think so, and I think we might have ziplined there. Do you know if that's?
1: Yeah. It's a huge thing to stop yes. in Skagway, which is actually, so a lot of my book was written physically in Skagway because my friends have a cabin there where I go in the summer to finish my stories. But that part of Alaska, that area of Alaska that is called Southeast, that is like the most beautiful. It's also what I call like NPR Alaska. You know, it's it's close as we have to Seattle and it's cultural. It's you know, There's a lot of theater, even in these little tiny towns, like there's lo- bookstores and theater. And I kind of grew up in Anchorage and then in the interior, which is like a little bit, you know, we grew up off-grid, which is, it's a different culture. It's, it's a huge state. And people, I, when I tell people that I'm going home for Alaska and they're like, oh, you're going for a week? And I'm like, for me to go to like Skagway takes like a 12-hour flight. Then I have to spend the night and then I have a six-hour ferry. And then I have to drive over a mountain and then I'm a cabin. So I would never go for less than two weeks just to get, just to even see my family. You know, like at one point I had, my brother was in Fairbanks and my dad was in Anchorage and my friends were in Skagway. Other friends are in Juneau. And, you know, those all take big commercial flights and stuff to get to.
0: I just thought it was absolutely stunning. Like it was, there was just so many really cool things to see. But what you're talking about in terms of things being far apart, the train from Anchorage out to Denali, which puts you outside Denali, you know, so you're not even in the park. And then we took this, I mean, I think it was like a 10-hour tour of Denali, which goes in like five hours and back out five hours. And you still don't even get very close to the mountain, you know, the, the Denali, the peak there. And so it's just amazing how big it is. But of course, I live in Texas and it's not as big as Alaska, but it's pretty darn big. And people don't always understand the same thing. Like it takes me, you know, yeah. four hours to drive to Dallas and, you know, you're in New York and you drive four hours yeah. and you've gone through like three states.
1: Totally. And I will say, like when I was a kid back in the 70s, my parents and I used to drive up to Denali. And at that time, they didn't make you be in a bus. You just got to, we would drive up in our VW van, which we kind of lived in for a while. And we would see, I mean, I remember as a kid, first of all, being petrified at the sheer drop off the side of the road. Like I still get kind of tense on on drives with cliffs because I would be looking over and just, it was like a dirt road <laughs> up Denali. And then actually there was this little point where it said like, don't cross. And my dad would always take the chain down and cross <laughs> and drive on more. But we saw like amazing wild sheep and wild goats. And I mean, I was just, I was just in Alaska for two weeks and I, it's a great time if you want to see bears in June. And I saw like just within, I was in Skagway and I saw like a cinnamon bear club, two black bears, like eagles are everywhere. Went on a walk with a friend. This happens all the time in Anchorage and like we ran into a big moose. Actually the moose are kind of dangerous. I'm more afraid of running into a moose than I am of a bear. You want to be careful.
0: You do. We actually had two that were running through the Hotel that we were staying in outside of Denali. What? And they were, yeah, they were kind of running in and around. But we go to Colorado every summer and we always see the moose there too. And no, you've got to really stay away from them. They're really cool to see, but you can't get very close.
1: Well, the problem is that in our neighborhood in Anchorage, and that's sort of what I've loosely based the book on, we had this one spot that the moose loved to poop in. And it's right outside oh. my bedroom window. And I can <laughs> see the little pile of turds every single time. But one time, actually, a moose came. Just kind of staggered out of the road and just collapsed in that spot. I was in the dining room by myself. My, my parents were out of town. It was about five years ago. And I guess the moose had been hit by a car oh. because he lay down. I've never seen that before. And he lay down, he rested there for four days. Wow. And I was worried if he was going to pass away. I didn't know what to do. There are services that will come and help you take care of a two-ton moose. You know, like I, I do know how to feel dressed like a caribou, but I don't know whether, that's a big job. And also like, how would I lift it? It's, it's just a big job. But anyway, so I was thinking, oh God, A, I feel terrible watching this move suffer. B, what what do I do if this giant animal dies in my backyard? My parents aren't here. Oh, and also C, I was like, don't go in the backyard. And I had the dogs because I didn't want him to wake up and charge me. So I kind of just kept exiting very quietly through the front door, very careful of the noise I made and checking to make sure where he was. And then eventually after four days, he got up and shook it off and walked away. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It was wonderful.
0: That is crazy. That is crazy and wonderful. But I think that's one of those things that, as a resident of Alaska, you learn to respect those animals. And it's like every single summer in Yellowstone, they have some right. problem with people approaching the bison right. or the elk, and that woman was just gored by a bison. And you're like, how many times do people have to be told, these huge two-ton animals are not going to be like, wow, thanks for coming up and petting me, you know? They are not your friend. And Mm-mm. that's a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Alaska features prominently as a character in your stories. And I see why, as I listen to you talking about it, because obviously it was where you grew up and is a part of you.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, I specifically also, I wanted to talk, I mean, the reason why I also wrote the book was to show like a, how real Alaskans look, you know, how they negotiate the wilderness, suburbia and urban issues. So like, I, you know, i wanted to talk about things like the opioid crisis. I wanted to talk things about like alcoholism and Domestic abuse, there's a lot of domestic abuse and a lot of um, fear of sexual assault. A lot of it is also about, you know, the condition of women up there. I mean, of all the eight stories, they're all women narrators except for two. And even with that, the male narrators are looking at women. Cause one of the things I, I most wanted to talk about was like what it's like to grow up in the wilderness when it's like, you know, sometimes it's 80% male and you're 20%, sometimes it's ninety and you're one percent, you're 99 and you're 1% female you have to look at the numbers and it depends where you are in the state, right? But in a lot of times and in a lot of places in Alaska, it's a lot of men and a little women and how women have adapted to that in both their strengths, like how incredible these women are, how fierce they are, how competent they are, you know, and that they can do things like climb a glacier and like take care of a bear gun in case, you know, to take care of their kids, you know, take a machete and hack out a bunch of alders to get a plane that's, you know, like crash landed and at the same time, like show up for the bake sale with a lot of cookies, work a second job as a waitress. I kind of wanted to show how these women gathered their strength from the setting and the all male, like the very male dominated world that they live in and, you know, how it helped them and how it, it also like, how it really Cause them to struggle in certain ways and how they had to face those struggles.
0: How isolating it is. Yeah. That was the thing that I came away from with the focus on isolation and loneliness. And as you mentioned, alcoholism, like self-medicating, that they definitely were strong, but that there is a lot that results as a result of being in the minority so much and kind of being left to your own devices and maybe the fear of the things you were describing earlier.
1: I think also what happens is when, And I think this is universal with women. I think I'm pointing it out in the Alaskan sort of version, but I've seen it kind of all over. And people will say, oh, but you're so strong. You're so independent. But underneath that is a lot of just like any other human, right? Like somehow I think women get almost sometimes fetishized in their independence and strength. And we get underneath that is like, there was a lot of frosting, a lot put onto that strong image because you are strong. But that doesn't mean that you don't come home at week and you don't crumble or be afraid of being alone or be afraid of what's going on in your life around you, even if you're fearlessly, seemingly fearlessly tackling it.
0: Absolutely. Because it has to come out somewhere.
1: It does. It does. And usually it's when you're alone and nobody can see.
0: No, absolutely. Do you have a favorite of the stories?
1: I think my favorite is Hal Palace, which is the, it's the first story of the collection. And it deals with this a lot where It's a story about a woman named Dutch who is 67 years old and she lives on the lake in Alaska and she's married five times. She's been married five times and they were all disasters. Like one guy was an alcoholic and another guy was kind of a domestic abuser and another guy, you know, didn't love her. And another guy was just boring. And she had kind of a boyfriend that she wanted to marry who never loved her named Carl. And she's having to sell her house because she's run out of money and the day that she decides to sell her house, her boy, her old boyfriend, Carl shows up and she's hoping that he's going to say, okay, let's sell the house and go like live in the woods together in my van. And instead he's like, here's this dog. I need you to take care of it for me. It turns out he has, he has cancer. That's why he wants to take care of the dog. But, um,
0: and Houston's referenced in the story. I was happy to see Houston there. I was like, Yay.
1: Yeah, you know what? I asked my dad. Uh, I mean, not my dad. My brother's a doctor too. I said, "Well, where would you go get cancer?" You know, and he said, "Oh, Houston. That's where I'd go." That's what he said. Yeah, MD Anderson. It's Houston for the win. It's also because I was making him have a cover of of while well, he was lying about having cancer, and so I wanted to say he was going fishing in Galveston, which I always hear about guys doing, and wearing his fly fishing shirt. So I thought that would be a good cover. But um, those are far apart, but not in an Alaskan mindset. Anyway, so this dog just goes all around her yard and ravages everything and she ends up trying to trap the dog and high high hilarity results. You know, what I want the stories to be is like, you're laughing and you're laughing and you're laughing and you're laughing because it's so outrageous and funny and out of control. And then all of a sudden, boom, it kind of stabs you in the heart and you realize it's so much more serious and meaningful than you thought. And, um, that story, I feel like that, that goal was achieved. I don't even think I had that goal when I was writing it, but when I, when i was able to finish the end i felt like oh that is the the mix i want like so much of humor can get so light you know like it ends up being like a sitcom you have to be so careful with it how do we get like the full range of emotions into a story where you want to laugh all the time and then you want to think about the ideas and then you kind of want to you want to cry or feel so deeply with the characters how do you get all three of those things going at the same time
0: and those are the kind of stories that stay with you that you continue to think about long after you're done with them
1: yeah, and I was thinking about a lot of short story writers as I wrote this book. There, what, There's just really not very many. There's wonderful writers out of Alaska, but there hasn't been the same like tradition and legacy as there has been in other parts of the country. And I was looking at like a lot of Southern writers because I was sort of wanted to develop an Alaskan voice in the same way. And there's so many rich storytellers that have come out of the South and use language and have kind of like lavish, over-the-top way, but created so much emotion out of it. And I was sort of thinking, how could I do that for Alaska? You know, how could I take Flannery O'Connor and put her, you know, make it, make an Alaskan Fl- Flannery O'Connor? Or like, I actually was looking at Faulkner, not so much because I'm not crazy about his short stories, but his just boldness or Cormac McCarthy in his early novels, like Sutri. Like, how do you bring that crazy regionalism, you know, to a region that has it doesn't have a crazy regional voice yet? In fact, most of the Alaskan writers I know are writing in a very straightforward, sincere way, you know, but how do you make like a different kind of voice come out of this culture? So it was, it was a lot of fun, honestly. Is that awful to say?
0: No, I love that.
1: You're reading all these people and then you're trying to cook up something different and you get to go to the page and write all these great stories. And, you know, I I wanted there to be like, okay, there, it's something I call um, domestic survival. And what I'm trying to say is that like, it's the same dynamics that you'd have in a suburb of LA, right? The, the wife is cheating on the husband, the husband's distraught, but instead of them like having their showdown in their bungalow, you know, at a kid's birthday party, my showdown is the husband takes them on a 13 mile cross country ski, uh, across a frozen lake with two kids and he's feeding them candy to keep them going. And I think it adds a kind of high, low feeling to me that is, it's kind of delightful, like you think when you go to the wilderness, you're gonna be fighting over like who gets to eat the ham or like, you know, who gets to fight off the bear. But you're really fighting out the same things that you were struggling with the same things that you would if you were home back in yuck yuck, Oregon. You know? Oh my God, she he took my pants, my last pair of good pants, or she stole my socks. Why is she so selfish? Why can't we talk to each other? You know, and I find that I find that kind of lovable and intriguing.
0: But I think you're exactly right. Having all of that happen in a landscape like Alaska is going to have different yeah. different layers than it is if you're going to be in your home in LA.
1: You know who's really fun at doing that is I just read him. It, it's Gary Scheingart. I just read Our Country Friends, and he knows how to do that too. I've heard that.
0: I have that book, but I still have not read it yet, and I really need to. I got it last fall. When, whenever I travel, I love to pop into indie bookstores. and so I popped into the one in Newport, and I got it at the time, but I still haven't read it, but I really need to
1: what I love about he's doing is like, you would think I'd have nothing in common with this writer because he's writing like Russian, you know, like about the Russian culture and the pandemic in New York. But actually I feel there's so much in common. I, I feel like he creates a, like a Russian American voice in the way that I'm trying to create an Alaskan American voice with like full authority. It, I never had to research anything. I was always like, oh, should I talk up? You know, there's all this technical language about the state, about the weather, about global warming, about different native communities, about different landscape features. And, and I. I was trying to bring all that in because I'd been saving up all this knowledge for years with nowhere to put it, but not put it in a way that felt like a sermon, that felt like it was germane to the stories.
0: Well, and even land protection, because you mentioned that about the National Park Service and...
1: Oh my God, yeah.
0: You know, some people feeling like that the whole state's getting taken over by the federal government trying to preserve the land.
1: Oh, that's a regular conversation I have.
0: I'm sure it is.
1: Every village I go to that, like, you know, the Park Service has kind of moved in you know, there'll be a bunch of people that will talk to, or no, they're actually even in Anchorage and even in, you know, people, even in Skagway, which is like the whole, like very liberal kind of hippie people would be like, well, the park service just won't let it alone. And they keep building these trails and bringing these people. And I'm like, they're not wrong, right? It's true. The park service can really like, you know, take over an area. And then the park service can be wonderful because it can bring all these people and preserve things that other people might've just cut down, right? They just might've knocked over that old hotel and put like a, like a, I don't know what a condo or a house or something there's so many sides to these stories but I think maybe all writers feel this way but me in particular like feel that there's all these different perspectives like when you talk about oil and how much you know income it's brought to the state in the Haiti's the pipeline and then you see the other side you know where they're going to open up pristine areas and you know what do we do when there was the oil I was a run for the Exxon oil spill and I saw all that oil gush out and that oil is still there you know It's such a complicated issue that I feel like I feel all sides of it, and I feel maybe that I'm dumb that I haven't come to some point that I can say to people about what I feel about it, you know, like I don't have an opinion. Sometimes I feel that way about, um, I don't want to get too dark, but like capital punishment, like I can't make up my mind. No one in my family was ever murdered, so I don't know how I would feel if someone had murdered my, 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 my child or something, you know, like I get very, very confused about it. But I do know the job as a writer or as a writer, what I want to do is ask questions about these things and look at the different sides and show all the people that are talking about it. So it's the opposite sort of of what's happening now in our culture where we're expected to take a side and crap on the other person. Right. And I didn't grow up like that. Alaska always had all kinds of different people kind of living in harmony, even though our political beliefs could be totally different. You know what I mean? I'm not living in harmony, arguing. Okay. But being friends
0: right not living with the horribleness today where if you feel like you're on the opposite side of a spectrum you shouldn't even be friends which is so crazy
1: yeah or you shouldn't go to dinner together you know what I mean like I feel so privileged to have grown up with lots of Republicans and lots of Democrats and all of them like coming to the Christmas party and you know being partners of the cabin and going on float trips with them and sitting around the campfire and always thinking them as a as a person first and a party second
0: which is the funny part I think I was thinking about that the other day when there was some big debate about it all. And I thought, you know, I'm not even sure I really knew which party, I mean, maybe I knew who they voted for. And so I thought about that, but it was not so defined. Like you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. And it certainly wasn't a characteristic that moved to the top of the list. It was like so far down, you know?
1: Yeah. And now I feel like it's just all the time. And I think it probably affected how I approached these issues in the book. Like I mentioned every single one, because I think if you wrote a book about Alaska, you didn't talk about how now you know, there's a fall and there was never really a fall growing up when I was a kid. We didn't have the seasons the way you guys did. We had something in this. we didn't have a spring either. We had the breakup. The lakes would break up, the ice would go out to sea, and then it was summer. There was no spring. And in the fall, it would be like, seriously, I think like April 15th was the opening of like what you would call like, you know, caribou season or something. And then that would be pretty much fall. By the end of August, like there'd be like two days where the leaves would turn yellow, what leaves we had, and they'd fall down on the ground. Now there's like a real beautiful fall, which by the way is incredible and a great time to go to Alaska. when the mosses turn these colors and there's beautiful red leaves, but that's a real effect of climate change. And that's a real thing. You know, you can't, and also, you know, the fact that in the summertime it often gets to be 90 degrees and people are getting air conditioners in Alaska. Right. And so I kind of wanted to bring all those details in and look at well, climate change in little tiny ways in each story, right. Without making a story called Climate change. You know what I mean?
0: And feeling like you're preaching at the reader, which I think most readers really appreciate. It's much better to just have it wound into the story. Yeah. And then you stay thinking about that issue, but you're not feeling like, well, she is really trying to convince me about this, banging me over the head with it,
1: you know? No, I'm not. Cause I, I'm not sure what, you know, and I'm not sure what any solution is or anything, but I do know that if I insert it in one story and then maybe insert it in, skip a story and then insert it to a second, a second story later on, you'll go, ding. Ah. You know, I, I heard about spring in the first story and now I've heard about fall in the third story. And then, you know, now I'm gonna maybe hear about the smog problem in Anchorage and how it's trapping wood stove heat, you know, in the fifth story. And it'll sort of make a little pattern of like what it's like to live there now, which is something that, you know, contemporary these stories are set from nineteen fifteen all the way up to the present day and they kind of do talk about, you know, how we treat the environment throughout them, you know, from nineteen fifteen when they cut down all the forests and burned them to build Anchorage and you know, until now where we now have spring and fall, right? But I think it's just supposed to reflect the contemporary ideas that we have now and the contemporary reality, which is what makes, you know, reading new work so exciting. Like I remember reading There, There by Tommy Orange and his idea or his whole notion of like, uh, what he was talking was like the urban Indian, you know, and how, how, what that whole culture was. You know, when you're Native American living in a city and it opened that world to me that is very much our present day that I would have not gotten a glimpse of. And that's sort of what I wanted to do with my book is like show a glimpse of a world that other people wouldn't maybe know or be as familiar with.
0: And I always love those type of books. I think that's what I gravitate toward is learning about an area or a group of people or a culture or something that I have not been familiar with before.
1: Well, thank you. Me too. Honestly, (laughs) I tried to write a book that I wanted to read. You know what I mean? I was really thinking about storytelling, you know, instead of things like plot or, you know, like storytelling to me, I don't really understand what plot is and I'll never be able to write that way. But I wanted there to be like stakes, like you were going to be worried as you're reading the story. Like, are they going to make it across this lake with these two children cross-country skiing and it's like seven degrees out? They don't all have to be so dramatic. Another way to say is like, is she going to leave her husband or not? But I felt like I wanted there to be like emotional pressure on the story where you wanted to turn pages because it was a story. You know what I mean? It wasn't a thought experiment or it wasn't like I was trying to make a statement about art or I, I wanted it to be old fashioned story in it. And, and I wanted there to be old fashioned place, even if the subject matter and characters all felt pretty modern.
0: Or like in hijinks where you're like, I hope he's going to be there to pick them up at the end.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they're kind of running out of food on that raft trip.
0: They're eating lots and lots of salmon. <laughs> yeah.
1: These two girls go on a, on a raft trip with their dads and, 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 it, you know, a number of factors go wrong. They don't bring enough food. It starts to rain. The raft is going very, very slowly. And, you know, there's a lot of funniness to it because the girls are like pulling over and making talent shows at night about like Rod Stewart songs and stuff. So you're laughing, but there's always a little bit of unease. Like, are they going to, I mean, honestly, I guess it's the title, right? Are they going to make it out of that trip alive?
0: Well, how about coming up for the title for this one? I know it's one of the short stories, but how did you decide which story to pick as the title story? And then tell me about the cover.
1: Okay, great. Oh, these were two of the greatest, you know, experiences of my life, my writing life. So the what happened was I had written a memoir called Still Points North that came out, and when I was done with it, I was struggling and trying to write a novel because that's what you're supposed to do, and I just couldn't find one I could commit to. And then I was sort of thinking back about my past, and I was like, gosh. I wrote all those short stories like 10 years ago before I started writing nonfiction and I never really wrote one where I knew I had landed it. You know what I mean? Like I knew that it was, I was, wasn't panicking the whole time I was writing it. And um, I sat down and said, I'm going to try and write a short story. Let's just try and write a great short story. Let's read a bunch of stories and let's see, like, let's take the New Yorker and read that and see if you could write one with that kind of thickness. I don't know what I mean by thickness, but I, I mean like heft, a novel, that, a, a short story that feels like a novel, but has it's perfectly organized and you want to tear it through the pages and then the end feels so satisfying. And I wrote this story about this mastodon, this man that has a mastodon in his living room. And there's a couple that have this wedding party in this living room in Anchorage and their wedding goes completely off the rails. The bride is flirting with the host. The groom is miserable. And uh, it's, you know, kind of, Dark and hilarious, but it's also like a statement about marriage and how much we know the people we marry, essentially, or don't know them. Yeah, or don't know them exactly. And um, at the end of the story, I was like, "Oh, I think I did it." I mean, it wasn't perfectly there, but I was like, "I think this might be like a, a an organized story." And I and I showed it to a friend. She's like, "It is an organized story. Make a couple changes and write another one." At the end of nobody gets out alive, I realized there were other people in that party that I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about Janice, who was one of the women who was knitting. And I ended up writing this long story about where she had been going with her mother and her brother who has special needs. And then I also wrote a story about the wife, the newlywed wife, as a young woman. That's hijinks down the raft. And then I end up picking up different people and putting in dinner parties throughout, which was kind of fun. But I got the phrase, nobody gets out alive from what the father of what someone said, I mean, there's a, there's a man who it does not appear in the story, but he had killed himself and his son is still upset about it even now at age 50. And he talks about the suicide note, which was nobody gets out alive. And, um, that was a phrase, a family phrase was one of those places where, you know, my personal life entered the fictional story. I'd always thought about that phrase and what it meant. And it kind of slid in the perfect way when you're talking about suicide and depression and facing down your demons. And um, I put it as the title of the of the story. And then as I added and added and added stories, I thought about changing the title story to something else a few times, like Howl Palace. But I don't know. I just felt like first impulse, best impulse. I'm doing it.
0: I love it because I think when you are talking about Alaska too, and that kind of wild remote area that nobody gets out alive sort of ties in with that a little bit.
1: And a lot of it too had to mean to do with me, like, you know, what we do with our lives and the choices we make, because there's a sense of urgency in all these stories about how people are, are handling their lives and whether they're going to improve their circumstances or not. Absolutely. And will. That's why I love the cover because the cover, they just, I think there should be one or two other covers that were just beautiful covers. I mean, I remember being knocked out. I was like, this is the prettiest cover I have ever seen. And then I said to the lady, it has nothing to do with who I am or what these stories are. I am just not pretty. You're
0: like, this is beautiful, but it does not tie into my book, which is a huge pet peeve of mine.
1: Yeah, but I felt bad because I was like, these covers are like almost like the covers I'd like to, of the person I'd like to be. Like, I'd love to be that pretty and tasteful. Um, but I'm not like I'm so over the top and I'm outspoken and I'm always shooting from the hip and sometimes people like it and sometimes they don't. And um, that's something I have to live with. But very much my characters are like that, too. I don't think, you know, anybody in my book is they're lovely people, but they're deeply flawed and they have big mouths. And I felt like they brought this cover back to me with all of these, the boot print. Right. And then you, you look at it once and you think, oh, that's a boot print. And then you look at it again, and you see, oh, there's a wolf inside the boot print. And there's a woman with the pack and there's a woman walking into the woods and there are these trees and here's a bear print. I literally wanted to sob with joy. I'm not kidding. I don't, this designer and her name is, I'm going to credit her because she, Lauren Peters Collier, captured everything and more about my book without me saying a single word to explain it. She just came out of that of her own imagination. And then to have it be in this rich red color. I felt so much, I know this sounds exaggerated or even like a little weird, but I went all the way with this book personally. And it felt sometimes like I was writing it in my own blood. I was exposing so much, even though it was fiction, it felt like I was exposing so much about myself, about my past, about anything I'd ever experienced. So having it be in that red color, just to me, felt like it showed everything about what the book was personality-wise and the stakes. Having it be red just felt like blood like all the way notice, you know, uh, emotionally for me, it felt, anyway, I was thrilled. The people at Scribner were so good to me. I can't thank them enough.
0: Well, I think it's stunning. And I think it is very representative of your book, even before I learned about the blood. And now I know it really is. (laughs) Oh, thank you. But I think it's important. Covers are so much more important than people realize. And I think that's something I talk regularly about. I've had a cover designer on, I'm going to have another one on. But I think the importance of first having the cover match the story which you talked about at first like it just drives me crazy to find a cover I love and then I read the book and I'm like well I love the cover and I love the book but there is no connection but I think it's also wonderful when you have this stunning cover and I know exactly from looking at it at least the general idea of what your book is going to be about.
1: Thanks. I feel that too. I I was really, you know, it's the thing is like covers are a little bit like titles in the sense that you know, you don't want the cover or the title to narrate what is going to happen. Right. Right. Or nor do you want it to like, spell it out. Like you would never want a title, like a book of stories about Alaska, about (laughs) a book of stories about Alaskan women. You know what I mean? (laughs) Same thing with a cover. You don't want it to be like, here's a picture of an Alaskan woman and she's got an ax. I mean, I know people do stories like that. Some covers like that, but I think what you want with a cover and with a title, is it for it to like illustrate a feeling, knock at a feeling or provoke a feeling in you that somehow goes with what the feeling of the of the of the book is.
0: I think that's the perfect way to describe it to provoke a feeling in you for what you're going to be experiencing.
1: Right. That's exactly right. That's why titles are so hard and covers are so hard, you know?
0: No, I agree. But it is one of those things that there is so much personality and uniqueness involved in it and and feelings like when you see something, sometimes people will say, well, you love that cover, but why? And it's hard to say exactly why. It's just the way it makes you feel.
1: It's like, also, you know, who's really good at this? It's the people that make the opening for TV shows sometimes.
0: Like the, the kind of scenes as it's opening?
1: You know, the credits, like there was this show called Blood Ties and it had a lot of things that I would love about a story or a novel and that it was set in Key West. And for some reason, they have a lot more tools at their disposal, right? Like they can use music that had these kind of like kind of Led zeppelin kind of 70s music that they apparently invented. And then it had all these kind of, you know, evocative things of the ocean going in and out with racing clouds that led to the feeling of all this chaos that was going to happen in this family without a single picture of a human being. You know, no pictures of the family gathered together, you know, at their little hotel. It was all mood and tone, which I think is part of this whole process.
0: That's an interesting point. We've been watching Stranger Things. I had never watched it before and with my daughter- coming home from college, she wanted to watch it. So she and my husband and I have been binge watching to get caught up and they do a wonderful job in their intros.
1: Yeah, they do. My son is actually binge watching the new season. He's probably, he's got COVID and he's in there binge watching it right now, no doubt. But um, it's crazy about how many little different tiny things have to fit together. You've got to find that title. you've got to get that cover. You've got to get the right editor to, you know, help you get the stories in the right shape. Within each story, you've got to have, you know, so many components. It's It's crazy the books get written.
0: It really is. And you know, the interview that I recently did, I do this behind the scenes series that's once a month, and it's people in the publishing industry. And so the one I just did was the interior designer of a book. And I have had so much great feedback about that because a lot of people don't know how much goes into, you know, the the font and the the letting and the margins and the cover page and extra pages and multiples of 16. Like it's just been so fascinating and it was really interesting and it's resonated with a lot of people. And I think you just don't realize sometimes how much it takes to get a a book out in the world.
1: I know. I, I don't think I realized it either. Honestly, I've edited a lot of of other books. Like I, I'm an editor at Zippy Books with uh, Zippy Owens, and I'm much more involved in that process than I have been in other parts of my life. Like I used to be an editor at Catapult, and I would do my editing, but I didn't really like track as much the interior design. I was always involved in the covers, and we had a wonderful cover designer there named Nicole Caputo. But now I'm sort of getting into like every little nitty gritty. You know, I mean, even things as small as how people do acknowledgements. Right. You know, like I really thought about the acknowledgements in my book and I, I i don't know what happened. It was supposed to be just one page. I didn't want to have like 17 pages, like of specific acknowledge. I did that for my first book. I felt like there were far fewer people involved in this book. So much of it I wrote privately and I wanted to just have their names sort of simply put in as just a, a few things because I wanted to be super personal. I didn't know whether I wanted to share how every single person helped me, but I wanted to say how they, I wanted to say thank you to them, but I felt like my relationship with them in the book was personal. You know, I wasn't sure I wanted to say, oh, dear Fiona, thank you for reading all those drafts. It was a really private process in a way. And that's a different kind of of thanks. Definitely. No, and that makes
0: sense. But it is just so interesting to know, as I've kind of learning more and more about the whole process, all these different things that have to be decided and chosen and selected.
1: Oh my God, everything. Like even just the copying, they're like, do you want to italicize this? What do you, I, I used a lot of hyphens. So we had a lot of talks about hyphens. I'm one of those writers with an, like an Emily Dickinson uh, M-Dash issue. <laughs> I never saw an M-Dash I didn't like.
0: <laughs> You're like, that's fine. I put it here on purpose. Just leave it alone.
1: <laughs> it does everything a comma does and even better. Exactly.
0: Well, and editor-in-chief of Zibby Books, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. How has that been? That's very exciting.
1: Are you kidding? It's been a joy. Zibby is a wonderful podcaster. and She is. Like a huge literary champion for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of writers. And um, she decided to start an imprint for, you know, making kind of book club accessible, wonderful, you know, female centric, but not, you know, absolutely men are invited to titles. And so she asked me to be our editor in chief and we started this company in September and we are headed for our first book to come out on January, in January, 2020 three, right? It's 2022 now. I've lost all tons of time in January. And it's, it's so fun. She's so collaborative. We have a team. It is not a company that I've never been in this kind of open exchange of ideas before. And everyone is participating. It's, it's like, it's super inspiring, honestly. Like I can't, I, I get really excited to wake up in the morning, write a little bit of my new book. Cause I have a novel under contract and then like go work on these other people's amazing books with really smart, motivated and hardworking staff members.
0: It seems like a great group and it's been really fun to see the books that you guys have been acquiring. I can't wait till they actually come out into the world. So on the note of great books, what have you read recently that you really liked?
1: Well, I did read Our Country Friends by Gary Scheingart and I really enjoyed that. I love his use of language, You know, cross-cultural references between you know a Russian and an Indian American and a Korean American. And he writes this like And that he was able to like incorporate the pandemic because all of these people from New York end up in the country living in a bungalow community. And I wouldn't normally say that would interest me in any way, just coming up as an Alaskan. I'd be like, I'm not really interested about city people that don't know how to deal in the country. But boy, I would have been so wrong because the book is so joyous and it's so funny and it's so smart. And at the end, it's pretty sad in a good way. But I'm reading actually... I picked up The Great Circle by Maggie Shipset again, and I'm really enjoying that. I would sort of punked out on that.
0: Great Circle has been probably one of the highest recommended books on my podcast. When I ask people that at the end, it gets mentioned over and over again. I have it in both hardback and paperback, but I have not read it yet. But it is definitely on my list. It's just so big. And so every time I think, oh, I'll sit down to read it, then I realize, oh, I've got all these other as I need to read for the podcast or for something else. And so someday when I have a window of time large enough to read it. I'm going to sit down and pick it up.
1: I will say like, I'm a huge fan of her writing. Like I loved her book, Seating Arrangements. And I really loved the one about the dancing. I think it's called Astonish, Astonish Me. But this book, I tell you, I picked it up and it, I did put it down because it's got, it's like got a past component and a present component. And I think in my life, I was like really speeding around. So it wasn't just that it was long. It was like different narrators in different time. And it was, it's a slow burn, right? It's one of those books like Panchinko, where, you know, the pages accrue and you become deeply and deeply and deeply and more deeply involved. But it's not like you're going to sit down and read those first 40 pages and go, oh my God, you know what I mean? Right. So it takes patience and I think it's worth the patience. And I think she she certainly knew what she was doing. She was kind of writing an epic. But when I first sat down to read, I don't think I I would think I was so, you know, frenetic and frantic with my own life. I didn't give it the attention it deserved. So I actually went and bought another copy because I put it down and lost it. And when I was on book tour this, this week in Alaska, I picked up another copy. You know, there's this front narrative about a girl in Hollywood and then a back narrative about this woman who I think becomes a pilot. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not far enough in, but it's intriguing.
0: What I found, because it is so large, that it was kind of hard to read as a hardback because it was just so darn heavy. So that's yeah. why I was like, okay, I'm going to get the paper back and that will be a lot easier. But, you know, I've just begun Fellowship Point by Alice Elliott Dark.
1: Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm so excited. Sorry.
0: It is so good, but it's the same way. Like it, it is definitely not a page turner in terms of like a thriller. Like there's a lot of buildup and character development and it's very, very good, but it's not one of those that you're like, I just have to keep turning the pages. I know that as you know, everything keeps developing, it's getting better and better, but it's definitely also, I think a little bit of a slow burn, but I'm really enjoying it, but it's not a you know page turning story or whatever
1: but you know what her book i actually was just with her at a we, she was like a panel i was on a panel at, at a book festival at the montclair new jersey book festival and i almost actually fainted like with fandom because her <laughs> book the story like she has these two book of short stories one's called the gloaming and her short stories are so incredible she hasn't published i think any story collections for 20 years she's been writing this beautiful novel that right. never, i am dying to read that you're just mentioning But if anybody's out there listening and they feel like a big novel is too much to tackle, go back and read her short stories because she is a master. I mean, when we're talking about how do you evoke feeling, you know, she has this kind of haunted sadness that is just, it is so rich. It's not, you know, morbid or melancholy for melancholy's sake. It is like pregnant with life experience. I love her work. And I'm trying to get the galley for that novel. I call, she, we have the same publisher and I called them and I'm, I'm waited, waiting by the door for the package to come.
0: That's right. Because I was looking at your publisher just to verify it again this morning when I was, you know, re- reviewing your book. And I was like, oh, how interesting. They're, they are both Scribner.
1: Yeah. Everybody who I've read that book that has said that has read it has used the same word in its masterpiece.
0: Yeah, I agree. You're slowly getting to know the characters and that takes a little while, but no, I'm definitely enjoying it. It is a beautiful story but I think it's one of those that over time, you know, you're going to, it's going to, it's building on itself.
1: I can't even tell you, I loved a little life. And I remember reading the first hundred pages and being like, I don't know, four guys in New York, do I care? You know what I (laughs) mean? Like they're all rich. They're all doing fine. One's a famous painter. One's a famous this, you know, I don't know if I really care. And I don't, you know, I don't know. It just, I wasn't that into it. Then all of a sudden on page 100, my God, the scales fell off your eyes. And then I just had to stay up for days, finishing the next 400 pages. You know what I mean? And it became one, one of those great books for my whole life. That's the, that's the whole great part about reading is like your individual understanding of each book. And like, sometimes that slow burn can like be a whole delight in and of itself, considering like how fast television moves, like you'll have a person live, die and, and, and go to heaven all in one episode. It's too quick.
0: No, I agree. And I do think those longer stories, they also I mean, of course they're gonna take longer to develop because they're so much longer. You can't, you know, everything can't happen super fast. You've got five hundred and something pages. So, but it is it's
1: delightful. But you do have to like you do have to decide I'm ready for this at this point in my life. You know what I mean? And that happens to me a lot. Like with some of my favorite books, I'll just be like, There's something wrong with me. All my friends love this book and I read twenty pages and I just couldn't get into it. And then I realize what's wrong is not the book. It's actually me. I'm I'm not in the mood to read this kind of story right now. I should put them at a holy shelf and just come back in two years. That happened with Henry James. I just dismissed Henry James for like five years. And I even took a class on him in college and like just barely skimmed it and wrote the papers. And then, you know, in my 20s, I went through something and I remember reading A Portrait of a Lady. And it just resonated with me so deeply about what happens when you marry the wrong person for the wrong reasons. And like how you're trying to be an artist, but in name only, not in your in your your spirit. And that, I don't know. And then I became the world's greatest Henry James fan. I read every single thing he, he wrote.
0: I do think that's exactly right. I think one, I'm a huge mood reader. So it really does depend on what I'm in the mood for and what I've just read. You know, if I've just read this book that I absolutely loved, sometimes I need to read something lighter, like a palate cleanser to kind of clear it up and be ready for the next great book. But also I think some of it is life experiences, what you're going through right then or what you've experienced in the past. And sometimes those things just don't resonate with you if you haven't necessarily dealt with something like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah. I mean, and that's also, I was thinking about too, like during, oh, the pandemic, I read, I just bombed out. I mean, I read Mansfield Park by Jane Austen and I regret, like, I just slogged through that. I don't even know what happened. I had trouble reading each sentence. I feel embarrassed now. It's
0: not her best either, though.
1: It's not her best.
0: I mean, I do like, I love Jane Austen, but it is not her best. So, I mean, I can understand that. It'd be different if you said that about Persuasion or Pride and Prejudice. I'd be like, Lee. But about Mansfield Park, I can understand.
1: Thank you, because it is kind of embarrassing. (laughs) Nobody wants to knock the Austen. You know what I mean? Nah, that's okay.
0: Well, this has been absolutely delightful. Lee, I'm so glad you joined me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you.
1: No, I'm so happy to have to, to be invited, Cindy. This was really you're such a thoughtful reader and the conversation is kind of exciting because my day is not littered with people that read as much as you do or as thoughtfully. And so it's actually been a privilege.
0: Hello. Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books and recently came across book clubs a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and that link is also in the show notes. I hope you will check out some other thoughts from a page episodes, and have a great day. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.